you can see that we are getting ready here at church uh, for, um, for Advent, for Christmas, to get excited. We put the giant tree up uh, after our, um, our big Thanksgiving celebration, if you were here. It was a ton of fun, this whole place. All the chairs were picked up, and it was replaced by round tables, and people came in. There's a whole buffet of food back there, uh, and we just had an amazing time uh, celebrating and laughing and talking, and people were getting to know each other. And it felt like um, if I had a really big house, and this was the dining room. Uh, so if you could have, been, if you were there, uh, I, I hope that you had a great time. It is definitely going to be the first annual uh, because it was such a great time. We want to keep, we want to keep doing it. But that was part of our preparations, right? Is is the the way that Thanksgiving fell? We're like, we got to get ready for Christmas. Like we got to start. You know, we got a big place now to deck out a little bit. So. Uh, every week we want to try to, just like you maybe do in your homes, add to something. So we're going to put lights on the trees. And we would love for you, um, as because we're part of this family, we have our own thing going on here, I would love for you to bring an ornament for the tree. Uh, we could make one of these really um, beautiful trees where it's perfectly choreographed of the kind of colors and the things, but we're not really those kind of people anyway. <laughs> And so I thought, let's, you remember when your kids were little, some of you have kids, or when you grew up in a house like I did, where you have all these handmade stuff and it's a mishmash on your tree? That's the kind of tree that I want us to have. So I would love for you to bring in um, some of the ornaments that you care about. We're going to have our kids in the next couple weeks um, make some ornaments uh, to put on our tree. So I promise you this, if you bring an ornament, you can have it back. So if you're like, Carrie Rogers, I love this ornament and I'm willing to lend it to you uh, you, can, you can take it back. But I just thought that'd be a fun representation of our family Christmas tree in the back. So hopefully you guys can do that over the next uh, couple weeks. So this week we're kind of focusing on our uh, unwrapped series, uh, specifically about the Magi. The Magi have always been sort of a confusing quandary to me. I remember thinking about them as a kid and sort of saying, what's the deal? They're part of the, the nativity scene, but they're not in the Luke 2 story anywhere. Is there a difference between the Magi and the three wise men? Are they the same? Like, do you remember having any of these questions as a kid? They bring weird gifts that you would not bring a baby. What is a baby going to do with gold? Like, put babies put everything in their mouth. That's not good. I just remember thinking about all these things. They couldn't have got there the same time as the shepherds if they were from afar. So this whole Magi thing seemed, I don't know, relatively ridiculous to me. And I knew they fit into the story, but it never made a lot of sense. And I'm wondering if that was the same for you. Or if you just sort of like, no, that's just part of the story and I accept it as truth. But I wanted to, uh, to dig a little bit and to uncover a little bit the story of the Magi. And so it's actually found in Matthew 2. So if you have a Bible or a device, some of our scripture is going to be on the screen today, but I'm going to ask that you're willing to just sort of like plow through with me because this is what happens when I have a lot to explain in a short period of time. Cool? So if you have a device, great. If you have a Bible, even better. You can kind of page through a little faster. Um, but Matthew 2 is where the actual, the only place that the story of the Magi coming to visit appears in Scripture. So I just want to read it so that we have our same, so that we're kind of coming from the same page. Yes? All right. Matthew 2 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Very vague, from the east. Interesting. You could laugh there, by the way. It's 
Okay, all right. Uh, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have came to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is this Christ to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Interesting. Herod, here, fun fact. Herod, so ridiculously self-obsessed, wanted to be um, the ruler of all, thought he was the messianic ruler too. Even though he didn't come from, uh, from Judah or from Bethlehem, he built a giant castle there, just in case. Like a big place for him, just so you know, I'm basically from here. It's like when you move to Florida and have a home, you can't say you're from Florida, but Herod wanted to because he wanted to convince everybody that he was the guy. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. Lies. After that, they had heard the king, uh, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star had been seen in the east. They went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they turned to their they they returned to their country by another route. Okay, so this is that's it. That's what we know, and it seems like it still doesn't answer my questions of why. Why do they care? Why are they traveling such a long distance? It doesn't, they, they found the star, and that seems magical and weird at the same time that this star must have appeared a, long, a while ago, and then they followed it the whole way. Okay, but why? Why did they care so much? I don't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. In order to do that, I think we've got to go back to the Old Testament and, and turn to the book of Daniel. Right, So in Daniel chapter 1, so if you are familiar with the story of Daniel, the most familiar one to us is uh, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Remember, there's, you talk about that as kids. Um, it's a veggie tales, one of my favorite ones, actually. I'll, I won't sing for you. But that's where we meet Daniel, and this is the first time we really hear about magi. Uh, so you need to know that King Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, has been the most recent king. He just kind of overtook and um, and somebody, the other king just left. And Daniel and his friends are Jews, and so they're descendants of the exile in Babylon. So they were part of um, the, the way that the kingdom split, and they got captured, and now they're part of those descendants of people that have been uh, captured in Babylon all those years ago. Weird, interesting, important to know. So if you start off chapter 1, starting at verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered the chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. 
They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So that gives you a little idea of it's just sort of this thing. Like a, a new king comes into power and he says, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be part of um, what the government is now going to have here. Uh, part of my palace, I'm going to have these advisors and I'm going to make sure that they are trained and they're treated well and they know things. They're smarty pants is what they are. Like gathering all the people like the Mensa people and they bring them all in and they're going to know the things and they'll be trained and they're going to they're going to get to live really well. They're going to get to eat really well. But Daniel, if you are familiar with the story, refused to eat the food because eating the food at the king's table would have gone against uh, what Jews were allowed to eat. So that indicates to us that he was still a practicing Jew following those laws and rituals about what he could eat and not eat. He didn't want to, in his words, defile himself or to disobey God, so he refused that. And they were worried about it. So he's like, listen, we're going to be fine. Um, well, you just give us fruits and vegetables for the next 10 days. I think they created a fast now because of Daniel. Um, but uh, you get to eat fruits and vegetables uh, for the next 10 days, and then you can compare us to all the rest of the people that got to eat the king's food. So they did, and it was like, oh, they're, they're fine. You're, you're actually healthier and, and doing even better, uh, which was so the first sign that God was, had been on their side the whole time, Right? They were better than anyone else, having eaten less, having eaten what people would normally think, oh, that's not sustainable, you need more protein. So by the end, in verse 18, it says, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel and his friends. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magician and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So he found these guys, these Jewish guys, and they ended up to be the best of the best, the cream of the crop. He brought them in amongst all these other crazy smart people, and they rose to the top every time. They were the, they were the smartest of the wise men, known as magi. Right? He would also be known to interpret dreams and visions. So God had already gifted him this special gift over and above what other people of the time had. And that's what he was called on to do. Shortly thereafter, the king had, was having these troubling dreams, and he says, I need you to come and help me interpret those dreams. So can you put the next one on the slide? This one's up here for you. So then King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, after he had... Um, he had, Daniel had come and interpreted this dream that had been troubling the king and causing him to lose all kinds of sleep. He, he solved it for him. And it just sort of one of those things where if, if you have this something that's been gnawing at you and, and causing you to not be able to think straight and lose sleep, I can only imagine, right, the relief that it feels when um, that gets resolved for you, right? Like a weight has been lifted. So it says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king, this is the, this is the sweet part, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. 
Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained in the royal court. What? So he goes from now, he, he's not only the cream of the crop, now he's in charge of all the wise men. So Daniel, now this sort of young Jewish boy uh, who has been raised and, and has, years have gone by, he has proven himself time and time again and now is the leader of all the, all the magi in the land. So if you think about the, what the magi were in charge of, he was in charge of figuring out what, or, or telling them almost like a curriculum, what they were going to study, what they were going to know, um, what was going to be important for them to focus on. And he's a Jew. You can't lose, fat, lose sight of that. Now he's in charge of the greatest minds in Babylon. They spent time um, looking at culture and ancient writings and everybody knew him and he is now a big deal. And after a few years, they got a new king and King Darius came in and he, of course, as new kings do, like to set up some new rules. And so he wanted to be raised up to a level where no one else was allowed to be worshipped except for King Darius. King Darius wanted to be like a god, even more than a king. So he made these rules and said, you can pray to no one else. You can have allegiance to no one else but me. And this is the story that's maybe familiar to you, is because Daniel stands in disobedience to the king and gets chucked in the lion's den. You remember that story? It's a great story. He gets thrown in and, and you imagine the worst. And the next morning the king comes back and God has shut the lion's mouth and he doesn't get eaten. And all the cartoons, like, they're friends, right? When you look at the, the Bible story cartoons, they're just sitting, hanging out. The lion can't open his mouth, but he seems happy about it. So God protected him again, but he continues. He, con- he continued to pray to a God who he wasn't supposed to. He was in complete disregard of what the law was. And then in Daniel 6, there's a slide for this too, Josh. He says, Daniel 6, 25 through 28 says, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every human language on the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a degree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. And this part is, is over here because this is, this is his decree. This is the words of King Darius. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus of of Persia. So the story just keeps continuing. He just keeps remaining faithful to God and God continues to put him in the next higher degree of power. And then this, at the very end of it, he makes a proclamation that all the people of the nation have to follow Daniel's God. What? The entire nation shifted and changed course because of the faithfulness of one man. Because he, wasn't, he didn't back down, he wasn't afraid, he kept telling his story and his truth to anyone that would listen. 
And then a whole nation changed and turned to God. That's insane. And then, the reason we go through this and we went through it fast is because 500 years later, magi from the east make this really long trip. Because if they're coming from Babylon, that's almost a thousand miles away. And it's going to take them time with all their stuff to come and to travel and to follow this star. 500 years later, the Magi are still interested in who this Messiah is going to be. And they were looking and they were waiting and they were watching this whole time. Generations of people have passed. Generations of people have been in these positions of power. And 500 years later, Magi from the East come to worship the Messiah because they saw this star. And how did they know? How did they know what they were looking for? Why did it matter? For that, we have to go all the way back to Numbers. Numbers 24, will you put it on the screen, Josh? There's all these prophecies that were waiting to come true, and they're part of the Jewish story, right? The, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, these were the books that all Jews paid close, close attention to, and they knew it. They knew it backwards and forwards. And this is what they were referring to about the star. It's a prophecy in Numbers 24. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheth. Idiom will be conquered. Sir, his enemy will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. The Magi knew. They knew numbers. They knew the book of the law. They paid attention to those things. Why did they pay attention? Because Daniel. Daniel told them to. Daniel was put in charge of all of them. All of the studying that they had to do, all of the learning, all of the paying attention came from Daniel because Daniel was put in power and authority over them because God, from the beginning of time, orchestrated a salvation plan for us. God, from the beginning of time, when you see it true, all the way over in the book of Daniel, that God had a plan for us, one that would come to save the world. 2,500 some years later, we are still talking about it. We are still engaged. We're still, it still matters to us. The Magi were there because they'd been waiting for Advent for all of these years. And they'd been hearing the stories and they'd been reading the scriptures and they'd been waiting and wondering. The Magi came because Daniel lived a life that mattered. He's kind of, he only gets credit for a couple stories, right? It's kind of all we sort of needle Daniel for, but wow. It's so important when we start asking questions about why the Magi were there because they're part of this, you know, nativity scene. And you dig and you uncover all the way back to what God was already doing in the heart and the mind of a person named Daniel. And how Daniel, in, in the face of uh, of extreme oppression and um, prosecution stayed firm in the God that he trusted and believed in and he lived a life that mattered. He told his story 
He stayed faithful to what God put him in charge of. He stayed faithful to what God had told him to do, the, what he felt. I think to have convictions like that go far beyond um, because I read it in a book, right? Those kind of convictions are in your heart. That's something that Holy Spirit does when he works and, and, and gets in your heart and transforms the way you live. That's what happened to Daniel. Daniel was transformed by God and foreshadowed Jesus and never, ever, ever knew that was part of the story. What kind of legacy do I want to leave? I never thought I would think about that at Christmas time. But this legacy of faithfulness. I was meeting with someone not too long ago um, talking about um, our testimonies of faith, our stories, and how sometimes you kind of feel like, I don't really have one. I grew up in a Christian home, and I've got really great parents, and you've got this list of really good things, and I keep thinking, then it reminded me of really a lot of this story. Because Daniel's a story of faithfulness. From generation to generation to generation, a story of faithfulness. And that's something to be celebrated. How wonderful it is for somebody, uh, maybe Landon someday, right? We just baptized, who has entered into this covenant, and then he's raised by these wonderful Christian parents who have wonderfully supportive Christian family that are here today, and they're part of a church that loves and cares for them. I hope and pray that years from now, he stands here or somewhere and says, I believe. I have a story of faithfulness. That my God has loved me and cared about me and known me from the very beginning and then he placed me in and amongst these people that love me and care for me. That's a story of faithfulness. There are, there are families in here that have um, legacy stories. When I look at the faces of grandmas, they have stories to tell and grandpas of loving their families into existence. And when you love and serve the Lord, that becomes this fantastic story of faithfulness, a legacy that you get to live, to follow the God that you believe in and how that just transfers time and time again to people. Because 2,500 years later, we're still talking about it. It mattered. It matters then and it matters now. The Magi are proof that God had a salvation plan all worked out. Since the very beginning, he was faithful and he was good, and he put that plan into motion. And then when I just look around the room, it just is incredible for me to think about what stories of faithfulness are in here. How has your legacy been passed down from generation to generation? Because you, as heads of your family, as heads of your communities, whether it's a small or extended, you get to decide what's important and what you're going to talk about and how you're going to live your life. That's pretty exciting. And I'm glad that you're a part of it here because we're always better together. So that when we're in this place and that myself and other leaders of our church get to say, this is what we value as a family. This is what's important. And this is what we're going to talk about. And this is the legacy that we want to leave behind. Because Jesus is Lord and he loves us more than we could ask or imagine. And everybody needs to know that. So our community matters. It's why we always talk about community. What's next? Who are the people in our lives that don't know this story that we want them to be talking about? And if we tell it to them, then years from now, they'll be sitting around a table of their own and they will tell their family because legacy matters. Let's pray. God, you are, you're good. 
and you love us, and you, you are in the details. You are, you are a planner and a provider. You thought of things that we couldn't have even known we needed. You've loved us in a way that is um, unimaginable, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that out of your great love, you moved that you gave Daniel a really great story to tell. And I'm thankful for his faithfulness. For in the midst of all the trials and things that he overcame, he was able to, to say, I believe in God and that he is with me. And that we're still talking about it. God, I pray that that kind of, that kind of faithfulness uh, will be in our hearts and in our minds, not just this holiday season, but God always that we can always be thinking about the legacy that we want to leave behind. That your name will always be on our lips, that we'll talk of you, that we'll speak of you, that, we'll, um, that our actions will always point back to you, that everything that we do will honor and glorify you, God. That's what our heart's desire wants to be. That's who we want to be as a church, and that's who we want to be as people. And I just pray, God, for that revival in us that your Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts and in our lives and in this place and in this church and in Granville and in our world. God, that your Holy Spirit will send a revival that we can lead uh, stories of, of, of legacy for who you are and proclaim that truth that you are Lord and that you love us and that you died for us so that we can live with you forever. God, I'm grateful. So as we enter in this Advent season, I pray that we can think about things differently. That we can think about how this story so long ago, how it deeply affects our lives today. And I just pray that you will encourage us. Encourage us to keep, um, to keep doing what you're calling us to do, is to proclaim your name wherever we go. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.